This is lesson number eight in our series. Um, again, this has been a uh, somewhat somewhat of a, of a long uh, series, maybe longer than I had expected. Um, sounds like a, a lot of time to devote to such a topic, but what I've tried to do um, uh, is, is to not rush through this, um, to not rush through this material, but to give it to you in, in more bite-sized uh, pieces, much, uh, much like I might do in the process of counseling someone that's struggling with worry or fear. Um, so rather than just give you the, hey, let's spend one lesson on this and just give you the quick bullet points, we tried to lay uh, a good foundation and to be careful not to make a lot of assumptions. Uh, so we've looked at various things. We've looked at, at emotion in general and how thoughts and emotions and actions work together. Uh, we've spent some time talking about counterfeit ways of dealing with fear, uh, whether it's running to some kind of a false refuge uh, or trying to control our circumstances or turning to some quick fix solution or trying to insulate our lives from every threat or maybe even making it our main goal to conquer fear, uh, which is really too small of a goal. And that's true of any sin. I mean, a lot of times we have to, we have to stop in the middle of our counseling and, and tell an individual that, the, the, the danger is that they're making overcoming sin the goal, the main goal. And I'm not saying overcoming sin is not a goal. I'm just saying that eliminating fear in your life is not the ultimate goal. Um, eliminating anxiety is not the goal. The goal, ultimately, that sort of overarching goal in, in our lives as believers is not to be fear-free, but to please and glorify God in everything. And if we don't have that as an ultimate goal, then that we really won't have what we need to sort of continue to motivate us in the struggle and in the battle. Um, so we've 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 got we've got to get glorifying God and pleasing the Lord uh, as our main goal and keep it there uh, because that will that will, again will help us to keep our focus on the right thing on focusing primarily on Christ right and, and the gospel. All that to say, we finally come down to looking at some practical steps to overcoming fear. So these are sort of the nuts and the bolts. Um, these, are, these are probably some of the things that you may have been expecting in the early weeks to just say, just tell me what I need to do. Okay, so we did want to get down to this point, and we're there. So uh, we're looking at what we're calling some, some of the critical components in, in the process of change. Uh, so these are um, some of those practical steps. And last week we covered these uh, first uh, three uh, of ten, and we'll cover the others uh, today. First, we said that you must identify your fears and how you have handled them in the past. So you you have to answer the question, what exactly is it that you fear? Uh, And whatever it is, you're you're trying to put your, your finger on it. You're trying to isolate what that is. So you try to identify what it is that you value and might be afraid of losing. So what are you afraid of? Uh, what are you afraid of not getting that you want or that you think that you need? Or what are you afraid of losing that you already have? Okay, so what most people are focused on, they're focused on the feeling, right? They're focused on whether it's, whether it's this high level of anxiety, whether it's physiological implications of anxiety, whether it's some sort of a panic attack, they're typically focused on just, they just want relief from that, from that feeling, right? But we have to get them to think really beneath that emotion and feeling and get back to some of these issues of, 
of, of really heart idolatry. You know, that there, there are things in their lives that they want, desire, love, cherish, treasure more than Christ. Uh, or there's, there are things that they, they already have and possess that they're afraid of losing. And ultimately, they're not believing that God is enough and that God has done enough for them. And then, of course, we, we need to talk about how, how, you've, how people have handled that. So how have you handled your fear in the past? You're just looking at patterns. Um, and again, this is very simple. This, these, this is just days, days and times. You know, I just go over with people sometimes, when are these things happening? Um, interestingly, there's oftentimes a pattern. You know, it always happens on Thursday, <laughs> you know, or it always happens on Saturday, and it always happens at 8 p.m., or it always happens around this particular person or in this particular circumstance. Well, that's very helpful to know, right? Because that's going to help us to drill down and get at what some of these heart issues uh, what heart, heart issues are really going on. So you need to do that. And then second, we said you must ask yourself some good, we, I call them x-ray questions that get at the heart issues. And so we considered a number of, of those examples. I won't go back through that. Uh, I'll just mention again that if you're interested in, in anything that's in the PowerPoint, uh, I had some, some folks ask for that this week, and I'll be glad to send you those, those questions. Um, for your notes, so you can you can just email me on that. Uh, third component was this: that you must fear view fear as a signal that may be pointing to heart problems. In other words, your fears say something about you, or fear reveals. So you need to listen to what your fear is saying. Fear may be pointing to a spiritual heart problem or problems. So what does your fear say about how you have been interpreting life and circumstances? Uh, What does your fear say about uh, what you've been uh, thinking about and turning over in your mind, right? Because we are, folks, we are constantly thinking about things. And so we don't often pay attention to what the meditation of our heart, right? Like what's, what's sort of in our minds and maybe even... Uh, we're not even aware of. It's sort of in the, we might say it's in the, in the back of our minds. We're not, we're not paying attention to that, but yet it's there. And a lot of times those thoughts that are churning and going on throughout the day, those are what lead to this, up to this anxiety or this, this, uh, this panic attack. And so uh, we, need to, we need to think about what we're thinking about. So what does your fear say about that? What does your fear say about what you may have been worshiping or demanding or clinging to other, other than or more than God, uh, what has captured your mind and your heart and your affections more than Christ? Uh, and then we said this one, what, uh, what does your fear reveal, reveal about what you want more, the gifts or the giver? Right? So is, is, it, is it the things that the Lord gives to us, the blessings of life that we've att- grown attached to, or is it, is it the Lord himself? So all good questions to consider at the very beginning and along the way to help you to unearth and uncover what's really going on to diagnose the, the real problem. And now let's add to that. So we're going to give several, several more. We'll add to that. Number four, you need to identify sinful fear for what it is. You need to identify sinful fear for what it is. So when the Bible calls something sin, we must never call it dysfunction or disease, right? When the Bible calls something a sinful lust... We cannot call it a disorder for which other people or circumstances are to blame, or for that matter, any, any other sin in the, the, the Bible names. Um, 
the uh, late Chuck, uh, Chuck Colson hit the nail on the head. This was, and this was 25 years ago. He said this. He said, The myth that man is inherently good deludes people into thinking that they're always victims, never villains, always deprived, never depraved. It dismisses responsibility as the teaching of a darker age. It can excuse any crime because it can always blame something else, a sickness of our society or a sickness of the mind. One writer called the modern age that golden age of exoneration. When guilt is dismissed as the illusion of narrow minds, then no one is accountable even to his own conscience. So we must own it, right? We've got to own this. Sinful fear is sinful fear. Uh, Sinful fear is unbelief. Uh, Sinful fear is a lack of contentment. Sinful fear is failure to believe that Christ is enough and that He has done enough. And we need to see that. People in circumstances can threaten us. People in circumstances can seek to control us or abuse us or take our very lives, but they do not cause us to be gripped with fear. They only expose existing unbelief. Okay? So when something happens in your life and you're gripped by fear, that thing or that person did not cause you to be gripped by fear. That circumstance simply exposed existing unbelief. Right? So when that happens, you've got to be willing to in- investigate your own heart, right? And say, what, where, what am I not believing? <laughs> What am I not believing? So we, we have to identify sinful fear for what it, what it truly is. And we have to have a, a proper sorrow over sin and a longing to turn from it. And I'm just saying, folks, some people never get beyond that, right? I mean, they hate, they hate fear. They, they don't like the consequences of it. They don't like the, the, the results that come in their life. Uh, they don't like the sensations. They don't like the... Uh, the, the, the feelings, they don't like how it affects their relationships and all these things. And they complain about it and they bring it up and they talk about it and they talk to friends about it and sometimes they get bad counsel about it, sometimes they get godly counsel about it, but they never actually see it as something that's sinful. And I'm not talking about that uh, a sense of sort of su- surprise or, or like when something happens, you know, like when somebody jumps out at you, you know, that, that's, there, again, there's not, not every form of fear is sinful, right? So there, we talked about some of these, these uh, aspects of fear that are not sinful and those that are, but we're looking at things, and again, this is, this is a broad brush on this, but one of the ways you can identify fear to be sinful is that it's keeping you from being faithful in your responsibilities. So if the Lord has called you in His Word to obey Him in certain areas, and if fear is becoming an excuse not to do that, then it's sinful fear, right? And that's just sort of a, an, an easy way to, to maybe identify if it's sinful or not. If you're not sure, then get, get some input, get some counsel um, uh, from someone that may help you to be able to, to sort those things out. But, but once you've done that, I mean, once it's, you've pinpointed that, okay, this, is, this is truly sinful fear, it is truly unbelief, then you've got, you've got to own that. You've got to see it for what it really is. If you don't, then again, you're just, it's just going to be a patch job. I mean, you're just going to be doing temporal things. You're going to be looking for quick solutions to try to, again, just deal with the, the, the feeling of being fearful and not really see it as an issue of the heart. 
Okay, so number four, we do that. Number five, you must deal biblically with evident guilt through repentance and faith. Because I firmly believe this, that it is, it is a guilty conscience that keeps a great number of people from experiencing peace in their lives. I really believe this. And I'm not, again, this is not, not every situation. But I think that this issue of having a guilty conscience is, is in so many cases tied to uh, this, this issue of, of fear in people's lives. So this is, this is absolutely critical. Okay, And then sort of with this, let's just kind of break this down. What does this look like? Well, uh, if we're going to deal biblically with this thing, this, this issue in our lives, then we, we need to begin by confessing our sin to the Lord. Right? If it is sin, then we confess sin. Right? We confess sin to the Lord. Um, we recognize and we, we, we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin because when we deny our sin, we reject the grace of God. All right, so we, we don't want to do that. We want to acknowledge our sin. You might be thinking, well, why do we still confess our sin as believers? Why do we do that? Because haven't we already been forgiven? And I say, yes, you have. Um, that's why we do it. Right? That's why we do it. Because of our forgiveness and because of the transformation that God has done in our lives. And, and the more that we grow in Christ, the greater our hatred of sin becomes and the deeper our penitence becomes. And so that is just, that is just a part of, of the Christian walk, that the Lord continues to expose our sin. We continue to confess our sin to the Lord. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And guess, we're, we're not talking about, because there are sort of two ways of thinking about this issue of forgiveness. One, you might say, is a, more of a positional thing, Right? So when we were first saved, uh, we were sort of, it, it, our relationship with God was more of, 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 of as a, a sinner before a judge, right? But when we trusted in Christ, right, we were forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And we were positionally placed in Christ, right, and in His righteousness. But as a believer, this is not now an, an issue of position. This is an issue of fellowship, Right? So, I mean, if we, if we sin in our Christian lives and we're not dealing with that, that impedes our communion with, Lord, uh, with our Lord, with our, our fellowship with God. And so we continue to confess. We continue to seek His forgiveness. God continues to be gracious and continues to forgive when we do that with a humble sincerity. So we remember as believers the cross and the debt that Jesus paid. That is what motivates us to thankfulness and to love that the Lord's love for you is so deep that Jesus took upon Himself the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin. So we confess our sinful fear, we confess our unbelief, our idolatry, our pride, and discontent. But we also acknowledge our identity in Christ. We acknowledge our identity in Christ because we have a, a new identity in Jesus. So we are, we are still sinners but, but through faith, we have been brought into union with Christ. And, and as a result of this personal, vital, and, and permanent union with Christ, we are redeemed from the slave market of sin. We are the possession of God by His grace. We are adopted into God's family. We are, we are reconciled to God instead of separated from Him. We are free instead of bound to the penalty and power of sin. We are prayed for instead of ignored. We are in God's presence, no longer alone. 
We are loved by Him instead of alienated. We are regenerated, alive rather than dead. We are rescued from God's wrath rather than receiving it. We've been forgiven and cleansed. We are secured and sealed by God's grace. There isn't a who nor a what that can separate us from His love. We are set apart as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God for spiritual worship. We are blessed with every resource we need to love and to serve and to give. We are all of these things which says much more about His worth than it does ours. But it's true, and it's all of grace, and we must believe it. So we have to to go back to these things. Or you might say this, um, before we obey the command to not be afraid, we need to go to the indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ. And this is just an example of some of those things. Right? And it's because people often don't understand this that they fail so consistently and miserably in their battle against sin. So we need to believe these things. And as we confess our sin and we turn from it and remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us, um, who we are now in Him, we affirm God's forgiveness. We affirm God's forgiveness because to do otherwise would be pride and arrogance in any way to question God's forgiveness. And then we need to ask God for grace to change. We ask God for grace to change. Moving away from trusting in yourself as the solution to your sin and approaching the throne of grace where Jesus is ready to respond with mercy to help in time of need. Believing that God's grace to change you is stronger than sin's power to destroy you. God's grace is stronger. His grace to change you is stronger than sin's power to destroy you. Then we must entrust ourselves to the character and promises of God. Because believing in God when nothing feels right is the very heart of spiritual maturity. Right? So I'm just going to tell you, folks, you're going to, this process of, of seeing your sin and acknowledging your sin and, and repenting and confessing and seeking forgiveness. and all. Uh, too many people are waiting for, a, um, for an emotion. There are too many people are waiting for some sort of visceral, some sort of, some sort of a change physiologically or emotionally before they move forward in these ways. I'm just saying many, many times you're going to do this and not feel it, right? But, but if you felt it, it wouldn't be faith. Right? I mean, that's, that, that's what faith is all about. So you've got to believe in the Lord. You've got to believe who He is. You've got to believe in what He's accomplished. You've got to believe His promises even when you don't feel like it. And that is the essence of spiritual maturity. I mean, that, in a sense, that's, like, that's what you want to be doing as you, as you mature spiritually, is you want to be sort of weaning yourself off of that, right? That, 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 that need or that desire to want to feel Right to, to have some sort of emotional zeal that accompanies your obedience. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says, In hope against hope, he believed, this is speaking of Abraham, so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, 
and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Or Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is biblical faith. Believing who God is and what He has done and what He has promised, even when earthly securities unravel, even when circumstances don't make sense, even when things don't feel right, biblical faith finds assurance in the hope of the gospel. It is firmly convinced of the worthiness of Christ. And it's genuine, not because it's accompanied by feelings or sensations of Gladness. It's genuine when it's grounded and verified solely in God's Word, in God's revelation. When it's grounded in divine promises and lays hold of those promises. We just said this, that through faith we are, we are brought into union with Christ, but it's also through faith that we experience our communion with Christ. As we continue to believe that He is who He reveals Himself to be, as we yield to his sovereign authority, and as we entrust ourselves to his gracious presence. And then we must deny ourselves. We must deny ourselves, because every moment of genuine faith is an act of self-denial. To trust and live by the word of Christ is inherently to starve our old appetites, appetites which are demanding to be fed. Appetites for riches, appetites for comfort, appetites for power, um, appetites for insulation from afflictions, self-preservation that results in deceit and blame shifting or hiding our weaknesses, self-exaltation that results in boasting and prejudice and hatred or contempt for others, self-justification that leads to hypocrisy, unforgiveness, and self-righteousness. Whenever our flesh entices us to grab temporal pleasures, we need to choose God's will over the passing pleasures of sin, which will normally involve some pain. (laughs) Normally involves some pain. Not that our choice will be absent of the joy of saying yes to the Lord, but as Sinclair Ferguson has said, that whatever we feel in the battle You cannot, this is a quote, you cannot mortify sin without the pain of the kill. You cannot do it. There is no other way. So all of these elements are are part of genuine repentance and faith. From, From recognizing and acknowledging our sin to renewing our minds to breaking and establishing habits of thinking and doing to putting off and putting on to walking in obedience. Uh, We've we've got to deal with these things. We've got to deal with our pride and our obstinacy. We've got to stop legitimizing our sinful desires, stop believing Satan's lies about the satisfaction of sin and the character of God, and yielding to the truth of God's Word and understand God's sovereign hand in every circumstance. Again, not easy. It's a battle. Uh, But we've got to keep this in mind, right? We're, We're fighting from victory. Right? We're fighting from victory. We said this last week. The greatest breakthrough is behind us. Right? The greatest breakthrough was your regeneration. Right? The greatest breakthrough was when God took a dead heart and a dead soul and resurrected it. Right? 
and gave you the Holy Spirit and gave you all these resources. We talked about how the Lord speaks of these resources as past tense. And, and what's happening is a lot of Christians are looking for some experience. They're looking for some book or some article or some MP3 or some form of teaching or a, a conference or whatever that's going to somehow launch them into the victorious Christian life, and they're never going to be afraid again. And that's just not how it works, right? It's just not how it works. Dealing with sin involves these things, and these things are ongoing. Confession of sin and remembering who we are in Christ and affirming God's faithfulness, asking God for grace and trusting ourselves to His character and denying self, we do that over and over and over and over again. So no shortcuts. But the good news, again, the greatest breakthrough is behind us, and God has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us And that is what secures us. That is what sustains us, and that is what lifts us up over faith-crushing circumstances. The fact that God has done this in our lives. And so you just don't see this in the Scriptures where where, 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 where the the, the writers of Scripture are, are addressing the issue of Christian growth and sanctification and somehow painting this picture of this thing that they need to be trying to, to, to obtain that they don't already have, right? I mean, they're aiming for Christ's likeness, but I'm saying the Scriptures are constantly pointing back to what has already happened, right? And so that's what we talked about, the indicatives, and why that's so, so important. So what are we saying? Well, we're saying that we need to be vigorously, we need to vigorously flee hypocrisy, And we need to vigorously pursue a daily clean conscience. Vigorously pursue a daily clean conscience. Now, what's going to help us with that? The fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord. So our number six here is you must develop a greater fear of the Lord. You must develop a greater fear of the Lord. Why? Because hypocrisy at its core is the absence of the fear of God. If you don't have the fear of the Lord in your life, you will become hypocritical. You will become hypocritical. And, and there'll be, there'll be du, du, uh, a duplicity in your life. There'll be a, a dishonesty. There'll be a, a self-deception that takes place in your life. And I'm, again, I'm just saying that when that begins to happen, the guilt goes up, right? Because you can't live with a clear conscience and hang on to hypocrisy at the same time, right? And so... So the Lord commands us to, we want to walk in the light as God is in the light. And in order to do that, and in order to really deal with this issue of hypocrisy, we've got to grow in our fear of God, right? To avoid a hypocritical life. A hypocritical life is one hidden behind a mask. It's it's a facade. People can make a profession of faith, but it not be real. Having sorrow and guilt over sin are important, but not necessarily proof of a redeemed heart when a person wants God on his own terms. Even morality and spiritual activity can be counterfeit, and we see examples of that in in the Scriptures. And one of the ways to battle sinful fear is to flee hypocrisy. And the way to flee hypocrisy is to fear God and fear Him alone. If you'll flip over in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 11... Luke 11, Jesus is dealing with the uh, Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders in Israel who are at this time uh, plotting his death and demise. And 
Jesus says this in Luke eleven thirty seven. It says, Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of men and and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers." Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And when he left there... The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. And under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now notice all, he's all this discussion about hypocrisy. Okay, And then notice what he says next. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear... Fear the one who, who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus says to the fearful, 
fear the Lord. Which is sort of, I mean, initially it seems sort of strange, but we said last time, if, if, you, if you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. And so Jesus says, fear the Lord, and, and what, do, what do the fearful need the most? The fearful need the most to grasp the greatness of God. To grasp the greatness of God. And just in this text alone, I mean, think about what, what, what we're reminded of here. We're, we're, we're basically told here that God is the one who will uncover every hidden thing. Okay, so what should that do? I mean, if that, just knowing that that's going to happen, right, should drive us to the light, right? It, it should cause us to flee hypocrisy, right? So Jesus holds up these examples, these Pharisees, and says, these are the hypocrites, right? But this is what the hypocrites don't factor in. What they don't factor in is that everything that they do in secret and it's hidden is going to be exposed. So if you truly believe that, if you truly believe everything is going to be exposed, or if you think this way, if you just think about the omnipresence of God, everything that you do, you do in the presence of God, right? That, that's what causes us, that's what generates a fear of the Lord, right? That we know that what we do as believers, we do in the presence of God. And so when we think about God's presence in that sense, that, that, that is what kills hypocrisy, right? That's what that causes us to, to deal with hypocrisy now, to root that out. The text also tells us that God is the one who holds the keys to hell, right? I mean, the worst that can happen to you is that you're going to lose your physical life, right? So don't worry about fearing men because all they can do is kill you physically, but God is the one who has the prerogative not only to do that, but to also cast a soul into hell. He has the authority to do that. He's also the one who prizes his people, right? So we know that God is is powerful enough to cast someone into hell, and yet in the very same passage, we're reminded that God is the one who knows all things and that watches over us with a caring eye. He's very concerned about His people. He's also the one who will uphold divine judgment. And He's the one who does not withhold forgiveness from anyone who receives His Son. And so in light of all that, Jesus says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Not for personal judgment, but fear in the sense of reverence and awe or respect because we have been favored by a merciful Savior. That is what we need. A controlling sense of God's majesty, holiness, and goodness. Because some people, I mean, there's a lot of passages that talk about the fear of the Lord. The question is, what is it? And I I think if you put all of the teaching of Scripture together, that's, that's sort of the way that I sort of define what the fear of God is. The fear of God is, is a controlling sense of God's attributes, right? It's, it's, it's knowing God, knowing His character, and then knowing what it is about God that applies to my situation right now, right? So given the situation that I'm in, there are at certain attributes of God that speak to the situation that I'm in. If I don't know the Lord, if I don't understand His character, then I won't know what to do. Right, But if I can think about and meditate on and think through the implications and applications of the character of God in that situation, that's living in the fear of the Lord. Or you might say it this way, it's the fear of the Lord is living with a, with, living with a consciousness of the eye of God. That's the fear of the Lord. That His eye is always upon us. Knowing and trusting God's faithfulness, 
that His power is faithful, that His love is faithful, that His wisdom is faithful. One of the reasons why I think so many people are gripped with fear is because they don't fear the Lord. Their their fearfulness is motivated by them grasping the wrong greatness. Right? They're not seeing the greatness of God in that moment. They're seeing the greatness of blank. (laughs) Right? It's a circumstance. It's it's an outcome. It's it's a feeling. it's It's a person, a relationship, or whatever. What they need to do is to grasp the greatness of God. So here's my prediction. My prediction is that there are some ladies in our church, not that there's not men, there are some ladies in our church who struggle with anxiety and fear that as a consequence of going to the attributes of God's study on Wednesday nights are going to have more victory in this area. And they're not necessarily, yay, woo, yes, praise the Lord, all right. And the rest of the ladies are like, can I get, are you sure that the registration is still open for that? Here's the thing, they may not even put the two together, but here's, here's the bottom line. If their view of God goes up, right, then they will have greater success in this battle against anxiety and fear. Because they will be growing in the fear of the Lord. And as they grow in the fear of the Lord, their fear of other things is going to diminish. So this is one of those things, folks. It's, it's not a shortcut because, again, you're talking to somebody that's been fearful for years, maybe even decades, and you tell them you need to grow in the fear of the Lord. Well, you don't grow in your knowledge of God like that, right? I mean, this is not like an instantaneous download into your mind and heart, everything that the Bible has to say about God. You've got to work at this, right? You've got to get in the Word. You've got you to you understand the character of God. You've got to live this out. Right? God's going to put you in situations that are going to force you to rely upon His character and His promises. Right? And, and you've got to do that. You've got to learn to do that. But this whole thing about the attributes of God is so, so, so significant. It's why in a lot of our counseling, I'll have people doing some other form of, say, assignment or homework over here. But then alongside of that, I've got them studying the attributes of God. Because I just realized that they don't know the Lord. I mean, they might know Him. I'm not saying they don't know Christ or they're not saved. I'm just saying they don't know much about their God. And until they learn more about Him, they're, they're not going to make a lot of progress. So you've got to grow in these, these areas. And again, I'm just saying you can apply this to any battle, any sin, any sin struggle in your life. You've got, you've got to develop and grow in your, in your fear of God. Okay, number seven, let's move on. You must study, meditate, and apply key Bible passages that address sinful fear. Now this, yeah, this may be obvious. I'm just saying it needs, it needs to be said that you need to know where to go in the Scriptures, right? When you're, when you're talking about specifically this issue of fear, you need to sink your teeth into Bible passages that speak to this Directly, And there are so, so many. Uh, some of my favorites, Psalm 23, Psalm 34. Again, I, I, I mean, we're, we're remember, working on Psalm 34 in our inscribed memory verses right now. If, if you struggle with anxiety and fear, I'm just telling you, you need to, you need to put Psalm 34 to memory. I mean, you just, just, just take every excuse off the table. You need to memorize and work through Psalm 34 and not just memorize it, but I'm saying you need to study it. You need to... You need to get into the scriptures. You need to study these things in their context, interpret them accurately, and then draw out the implications for your life. And memorize them. The reason I say memorize them is so that they're always accessible. 
right? So that you don't have to have your phone. You don't have to have your iPad. You don't have to have your, your Bible with you. But these things are just a, a part of your life, right? You've, you've put them to memory. And this is just something that I've practiced for years and that, I mean, no, no counselee that I, that I work with gets away without, without doing some of this. Uh, I just I want them to get into the habit of memorizing Scripture. So we got, we got Psalm 23, Psalm 34, Psalm 46, Psalm 112, Psalm 118, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43. Of course, we've got our passage here in Luke, Luke chapter 12. Uh, John 14 is a great one, John 14. So get into those passages, study them, apply them, uh, memorize them, put them to... Memory. So in those moments of temptation, you can work your way through those texts, right? And again, not just, not just some sort of rote, you just spit it out and then your fear is gone. I'm saying th- think about these things. Turn these things over in your mind. Psalm 34. How many of you are even working on Psalm 34? Any of you doing some of the memory verses and stuff like that? All right, Mark, going to have you stand up and quote Psalm 34. I'm just kidding, just kidding. So we're working on these things. There's an interesting verse there that says that, that they're... they're, they're uh, they looked to him. So third, it says, they, I think it's verse uh, four, maybe. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. It's just an interesting, because in the, in, the, in the middle of all this discussion about, about fear and then all this affliction and these troubles, he, he sort of just makes this statement. It almost seems out of place. It's like, what is he talking about? He's talking about n- not being ashamed. He's talking about their faces. I just envision they're looking to him. Right, and their faces are radiant. Right, they're beaming. And then I think about over in Luke chapter twelve when it talks about not being ashamed. Right, when when we confess Christ as Lord and we're looking to the Lord. Right, and we're dealing with hypocrisy. Right, we're dealing with hypocrisy, and we're growing in our fear of God. It's as if we're we're beaming. Right, as we look at Christ and the glories of Christ. So it's like you get to those verses, don't just memorize them and skip over them. I mean, get a, get a commentary out. Right? I mean, go, go and study what these things mean and then think, of what is that, how, how is that going to help me? How does that apply in this situation for me? So lots of, good, lots of good texts in the Scriptures regarding fear. Uh, number eight, you must clarify what you are trusting God to do in the situation. You must clarify what you are trusting God to do in the situation. You are trusting that the results are in God's faithful hands. They're not in your hands. They're not in anyone else's hands. Right? You are trusting that if something bad occurs, God will cause the results to be far better than if the bad thing had never occurred. You are trusting that God will be with you to equip you to fulfill your responsibility in this temptation to fear. So you're trusting the Lord, the Lord is with you and that He will equip you to obey. Right? So you, just, you want to think, of what, what is it that I'm trusting God? Well, because what we tend to do is we tend to think about the outcome. We picture in our minds what, the, what we want it to be, right? <laughs> I mean, we want this thing to turn out a certain way. I mean, I've got a, a meeting that I'm planning to have this week that honestly I'm fearful about. <laughs> I've got some concerns about it. I don't know how it's going to go. I mean, I can, in my mind, I can, I can picture what I would like for it to turn out like. I mean, I can envision this conversation and me saying certain things and this person responding in a certain way and this all going <clears throat> wonderful, right? But that's not what I'm trusting God for. I'm not trusting God to do that specifically because I don't know if that's what His will is. But what I do know is that when I get to that 
time when I'm supposed to meet that person, God is with me. And even if something bad happens as a consequence of that meeting, I trust that that is a good thing, right? And that God is going to use that to glorify himself and to make me more like Jesus in the process. And I need to believe in that moment that God will give me the grace that I need to go through it, right? He's going, he's not going to give it to me today. He's going to give it to me when I'm there, but he's going to give me the strength that I need to be faithful and obedient. All right, number nine, you must do the loving thing. You must do the loving thing. You must put on love. Genuine love for Christ stems from genuine faith in Christ. That is to say, love is, love is what faith does. We see this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Or literally, you can translate it this way. But faith through love is working. Faith through love is working. So the more we trust God, the more we will love Him and be freed to love others. Love does not generate faith. Rather, faith acknowledges the grace of God which brings us into a right relationship with God and produces the fruit of love. In other words, love is the outworking of faith. And when you are, faith, when you are fearful, it is, it is important for you to not retreat to your own, we could call them safety zones. Right To not retreat to your safety zones, but to move forward and to move toward others whom you can bless or serve. Why? Because love changes the focus. Okay? Love changes the focus. The focus of fear is me. Right, We become self-protective. It's all about what I stand to lose. It's all about what will happen to me. Sinful fear causes us to be highly suspicious and leads us to greater fear. But love is the total opposite. It's about what I can give, what I can give to others. It moves us toward the problem. It reaches out. It believes all things. It leads us to tackle our God-given responsibilities and leads us to greater love. So we need to learn to put off fear and to put on love or to put on loving actions, right? First John chapter 3 John writes in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight." So do what is loving. God's faithful love casts out fear so that you can now do the loving thing, whatever that is, whether it's speaking out in loving concern or overcoming evil with good or controlling what you say or showing mercy or forgiving or meeting a need. And remember, don't wait for the feeling, right? Don't wait for the feeling to hit you. 
Emotional passion and emotional fervor are not enough to carry you victoriously past strong temptation or to defeat stubborn sins. It's just not enough. Martin Luther warned, he said, quote, Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So we are commanded to love one another, and true faith doesn't wait for what it can see or feel. It simply believes and acts. And then finally, you must remember yourself, remember yourself, remind yourself of God's ultimate deliverance. Remind yourself of God's ultimate deliverance. In a culture that strongly emphasizes having the good life now, you need to remind yourself often that God offers eternal safety and security, not temporal safety and security. The Apostle Paul and his friends faced something in Asia that was so overwhelming that they were convinced they were going to die. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 1. He says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. So pretty frightening. What's amazing is Paul's response at the end of verse 9. He says, so that, so these things, these things happened so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, he's saying those, those scary events took place for a reason. There was a, a purpose and a meaning to the danger that they were facing. And you can sense Paul's confidence in God's good and faithful involvement in their lives, even exposing them to that danger. Paul doesn't say that he trusted God to keep them from dying. Rather, he grew even more confident in a God who brings people to life after they have died, which isn't very popular, right? We would prefer to trust a God who promises to get people out of dangerous situations, not one who might let them die and raise them later. And we have a hard time dealing with a God who promises implicitly that we will face temporal loss or danger if we want to love and to follow Him. But to live in this frightening world without being consumed by fear, you have to learn, like Paul, to have greater confidence in this uncomfortable God. To believe that His eternal protection is better and wiser than any present security that you could substitute. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, I love this, the first question in that is, what is your only comfort? This is the way it starts out. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. So this, this world is not our own. Ultimately, God will deliver us. But until we see Him, every fearful situation is an opportunity for you and I to live 
for God's glory. And that's the way we need to really, I think, see this at the end of the day, is that when you're in those temptations, you're going through those circumstances, you just need to see things through that lens. This is an opportunity to glorify God. This is an opportunity to fear the Lord. This is an opportunity to, to be obedient. This is an opportunity to, to, to rehearse the, the blessings of the gospel and what God has done. It's not a time to question whether God is enough and has done enough. It's a time to reassure our hearts that he has done enough and that he is enough for us. So those are just some things. Um, again, I mean, that's not, an, that's not an exhaustive list. There's lots of other things. I think a, a few weeks ago I said, I've got, you know, 15 or 18, whatever things. I try to just consolidate a lot of those things down. But those are some of the things that I would cover with someone if we were, you know, if I was discipling them, if I was counseling them. Um, hopefully in my own life, when I, because I'm, listen, folks, I'm not immune, <laughs> right? I mean, I struggle with fear and anxiety, and th- these are the kinds of things I have to continue to call my, I have to call my own heart back to these things, and I have to walk through these things carefully. I mean, those questions that we covered last week are not just, those are not things to just skim over. I mean, th- those are heart-revealing things we need to slow down and take some time and think about, and then we might think that we're repenting, we might think that we're confessing, we might think that we're dealing with our hypocrisy, we might think that we have a high view of God, and we may not. And so sometimes we have to take a hard look at our lives and examine those things and, and make sure that we are working through these in, in, a, in a biblical and in a faithful way. So hopefully that will give you some tracks to run on. If you're, again, something in your own life that you're struggling with or maybe something you could even use, again, is in your own discipleship relationships. Uh, we're going to sort of close that for now, and then we're going to spend one more week, we're going to come back and we're talk about worry and anxiety um, that's related in many ways to fear, but there are some specific things the Scriptures say about it and what it is, and, and, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to, I did want to take at least one Sunday to sort of do a separate treatment of that, and so we'll try to make the connections, but then also try to, do, to uh, uh, highlight the, the differences in the, the, what distinguishes worry from, from fear. So we'll look at some passages in, in the scriptures that deal with that, and then we'll kind of go through, not, let's say, not as an extensive list as this, because some of these things apply, right? I mean, you need to grow in the fear of the Lord regardless, right, no matter what it is. So we won't, we won't repeat those things, um, but there will be some specific, I think, uh, some practical things that we need to cover to kind of add to what we've already said, okay? So hopefully it's been helpful. We'll do that. I think what the plan for now is to, is to spend a week on anxiety and then maybe two weeks looking at uh, Ephesians 6. Um, along the way, I've been sort of making notes on the side about uh, just sort of this issue of, 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 of the, the, the battle of the Christian life and as it relates to the armor of God. So I've got some things over here that I've been sort of keeping up with that I want to come back and maybe spend a couple of Sundays talking about that. And then I think that's it. We're going to do that maybe two weeks in Ephesians 6, and then we're going to be back into Revelation chapter 4. So that just gives you a sort of a time, uh, kind of a schedule of where we're headed. Uh, By the time we get to the early part of November, we should be back in Revelation. Okay? All right, guys, thank you so much for your time.